All right, well, good morning. All right, good to see you, and thank you to those who are joining us online this morning as well. Uh, If you are new to our church, then we are so glad that you're here with us this morning, and you're welcome to stop by one of the tents or uh, the welcome desk on your way out, or you can come and introduce yourself at the front of the stage at the end of the service. Uh, But we'd also encourage you, uh, you could text the word CONNECT to the number that's on the screen, and uh, one of us will follow up with you this week, answer any questions you have, and of course, we'd like to get to know uh, who you are. Um, We left the pulpit out this morning, so if you come to our church regularly and you're wondering what the difference is between the traditional and the contemporary service, this is it. The music's a little different too, but that's, a, that's about it. Um, anyway, we're so glad to have you. And, you know, I, I don't know, I know many of you, I don't know all of you um, well, uh, but one of the things that I love about being a pastor is the opportunity to get to meet a lot of people. Um, and it's been so excited to have a first, you know, a front row uh, seat to the work of God in a, a lot of people's lives. And just to see, I mean, 180s, to see um, new meaning, to see all those things. But one of the, the, the most challenging things about being a pastor is the heartache of seeing people kind of do the opposite. Many who may have initially been excited about God, or at least you saw the potential for their life to see the opposite happen in their lives. Um, a friend of mine from high school uh, felt a call to ministry. Uh, we both kind of felt like God was calling us to be a pastor. And as he kind of entered into his senior year, he started uh, wanting to always be a part of the party and uh, having fun and uh, started drinking when we were in high school and started drinking more when uh, he went to college. Uh, that turned into recreational uh, drug use, eventually to crack cocaine and heroin and to his life ending in his early 20s. A friend of mine who went to Bible college with me um, struggled with uh, eating too much, uh, struggled with discipline, uh, ate out a lot, and just began to eat more and more. And he now, in his 30s, is 150 pounds more than he was uh, in his early 20s. A woman who attended my previous church uh, who seemed... Uh, excited about God at work in her life, but struggled with some self-worth and self-esteem issues, ended up befriending another uh, woman who casually attended our church who wasn't the greatest influence. Um, And even though there was some caution given to her about that friendship, began to run with her and a group of her friends. Her attitude began to change. She stopped coming to church and walked away from the church and God into other lifestyles completely. A man who was attending here uh, was into pornography, uh, began to use his phone uh, excessively for that purpose, began to delve deeper and deeper into that until it eventually became reality in his life, wrecking his marriage and his life. None of these situations started with somebody saying, I think I will ruin my life. I think I will wreck my life. Thomas Brooks says that temptation is nothing more than bait on a hook. Satan will bait you with with whatever is enticing. Food, sex, fame, money, power, glory, a relationship, security, comfort, 
And if we give into temptation, we ignore the hook because the bait is so enticing. Satan's goal for you is that you would think that what he will give you is what you want so that he can lead you into sin. And sin leads to death. Death to our relationships, death to our health, death to our career, death to our purpose, and even spiritual death. Today, as we continue in Mark chapter 1, we are talking about temptation. But I'm going to be mostly talking about Jesus's temptation, not our temptation. Because our hope in temptation is Jesus. When we are struggling with temptation, when we are struggling with temptation to sin, the answer is not to look within ourselves, ultimately, but it is to look to Jesus. Our hope in our temptation is Jesus. And I believe by understanding Jesus and the temptation that's talked about in the Gospels, we have our best chance in temptation. Because in the same way that we are tempted to give up our commitment to Christ and the character choices that he wants for us, Jesus was tempted to do the same. And so we're going to look at each of these tests that Jesus goes through, and we're going to look at how Jesus responded. And as we examine the temptation of Jesus, we get to the perfect example of how sin and temptation are to be resisted and the power by which we share or can share in that same resistance to temptation and sin. So uh, I'll, I'll recap where we were last week. We talked about the ministry of John the Baptist, and then we got to Mark chapter 1, verse 9, where Jesus is baptized. Mark chapter 1, verse 9 says, in those d- days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, we would think from a humanly perspective that what happens next is Jesus begins this incredibly powerful teaching ministry. We would think that what happens next is that Jesus begins to heal a lot of people. Or perhaps if we really read this from an earthly perspective, not really imposing other things we've already heard, as if we were reading this for the first time, then we would think what's about to happen is Jesus is about to be uh, given power and Jesus is about to give, be given wealth and take his rightful place in the kingdom. But look at what verse 12 tells us happens next. Mark chapter 1 verse 12 says, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. What happened after Jesus was baptized, after the dove ascended or descended upon Jesus, the Spirit came to Jesus, after God said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. Now, just for clarity so that you understand what is taking place here, In Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That means God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
There is a false belief amongst Christians that God's plan is always what's easy. That God's plan is always what brings us immediate earthly success. But this was not the plan that the Father had for Jesus. It was not the plan for Jesus' earthly purpose. Dr. Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, says, Jesus' temptation was no accidental encounter, no chance meeting. It was a divine appointment scheduled by the Father and implemented by the Spirit. This is what God wanted to happen in Jesus' life. Now, if you are familiar with the Bible, then the phrase tempted or to be tempted by the devil should cause you to turn your head. Jesus is tempted. If you read later in the New Testament in James, the half-brother of Jesus, his letter, James 1.13 says, let no one, talking about believers, talking about us, say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by, with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what this is saying here is when we're tempted to do what's wrong, we shouldn't say that we are being tempted by God to do what is wrong because God cannot be tempted with evil, and he doesn't tempt people with evil. But Jesus is God. He's in very nature God, and in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So how can Jesus be tempted? Well, what you need to understand is when you see the word test or you see the word uh, trial or you see the word temptation in the New Testament, almost every single time, it means a root word which can be interchangeable. And so it's the same word, but the, its application changes the definition of the word. And so what we learn from the Bible is God brings trials or test, or temptations, if you want to say that, on people, but he's never actually tempting people to do what's wrong. So a temptation really is a part of the trial, the test that God puts on our lives. With the test, which the test is to prove God's will, is for us to do God's will, there is the temptation to not do God's will. But Jesus, even though he's going through that test or temptation, is not lured away in the same way that we are. Verse 14 of James chapter 1 says, We are lured away, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So Jesus went through temptation. Jesus went through test, but was not tempted to sin the same way because he does not have that same fleshly nature that we have. Now, contrast that with what we're told about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are in the garden. God says, hey, do anything you want, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Satan says, hey, you should eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil because it's good for food, because it's pleasing to the eye, the text tells us, and because it will make you wise like God. And our desire is to say, I want those things over what God wants for me. Now, what happens in the life of a believer is we are being transformed by the likeness of Adam and Eve to the likeness of Christ. And that's where our hope is in temptation. Our hope is in the transformation to become 
like Christ. And our hope is found in looking to Jesus. So Mark says that Jesus was in the wilderness, Mark chapter 1, verse 13, 40 days being tempted by Satan. I'm going to stop there for now. Mark doesn't go into too much depth here on what takes place. And so I want to be faithful to Mark's text because we're going through Mark and stick to the kind of broader picture of this um, because we could spend weeks and weeks in the temptation of Jesus. So I, I want to just stay broad here, but we do gain understanding from the details of Jesus' temptation. So if you have a Bible, you can go back one book to Matthew in Matthew chapter four, which I referenced just a few moments ago. And we're gonna see a little more depth, a little more detail about what takes place in the wilderness. Matthew chapter four, verse two says, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus is fasting here. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he fasts to prepare himself for the ministry that God has for him. Fasting is something that the Bible talks about that we do to listen to God, but typically before something big is coming to hear from God and be prepared for it. For me personally, whenever I planned to propose to my wife, Christy, I fasted just to, to be sure, uh, hey, this is a big deal. Do I really want this person to be the person that's with me in life that I share life with? So I fasted leading up to, um, you know, really then making the decision to go and ask her dad's permission. Whenever I was led to plant a church when I was 25. I had some other opportunities before me. And so I, I, I went into a time of fasting. God, do you really want me to do this? Is this really your will for me? Whenever God called me to leave that church, to come here and be the uh, lead pastor of this church, I really fasted. God, are you really speaking to me? In addition to all the counsel I'm getting, what would you have for me? Now, you're really not supposed to talk about fasting, um, but I think it's okay to talk about it after you fasted because Jesus told us that he fasted. So anyway, I think I'm good. But Jesus is fasting, and before the end of his fast that we can believe the Spirit led him to do, he's tempted to command the stones that are right before him to become bread. Now, again, notice he's at the end of the fast. He is more than likely about to eat. And the temptation here is that you can have this need that, yes, God is going to meet soon, but you can take care of that need right now. This is what we are tempted to do. We are tempted to fulfill our own, want, excuse me, our own wants and our own needs apart from God's will. The desire is not bad. The desire to eat is good. The desire to provide for our family is good. God created us with the desire to have sex. The desire to have companionship is good. But our temptation is to not do these things God's way because it seems easier to do it another way. C.S. Lewis likens our desires to piano keys. And if they're played at the right time, then they make a are part of a beautiful uh, arrangement, But if they're played at the wrong time, then they don't fit. And so this is how Jesus is tempted here is to meet the desire for food on not God's timing. 
And here's how Jesus responded. Matthew chapter four, verse four. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus trusted in the sufficiency of God. He trusted in the sufficiency of God. He believed that God was enough. And that while he may have had a want or desire that was not being fulfilled, God's word could be trusted and God would take care of him. He quotes Deuteronomy 8 when he says, man shall not live by bread alone. And this refers to a period of time when the Israelites were grumbling and God provided manna for them. Man doesn't need bread. Man needs God. Richard Wormbrand, the Soviet pastor who was in prison for a long period of time, when he was asked about his survival and sustainment, he said, in days he would go without bread, he said, bread isn't my source of life. God is. What we see throughout the Bible is that God will take care of us. That God's will for our lives is something we can trust in, even if the alternative is enticing. Jesus trusted in the sufficiency of God, and we should trust in the sufficiency of God. But that's not the only way that we're tempted, and it's not the only way that Satan tempted Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verse 5 and 6 says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, this is probably the hardest of these temptations to fully understand and apply to our life. But again, Jesus is getting ready to begin his ministry. And during this time, Jesus is coming to the realization that while he is the son of God, he is going to be crucified and killed. Instead of being recognized as king, which he deserves to be, he is going to be treated as a slave by the very people he is coming to save. So what Satan does here is Satan twists the Bible to convince Jesus to protect himself, to prove that God is his protection by throwing himself off of a temple and allowing the angels to protect him. Now, what Satan is doing here is Satan is twisting the meaning of Psalm 91. What this shows us here is you can know some Bible and not know God. You can know some Bible and not be following God. When we think of Satan, we typically think of some boogeyman, right? Some, or something scary, you know, it's like that. Or we think of you know, some, some evil goblin with his evil goblin minions, something we've probably seen in some scary movie or R.L. Stein or something like that. That's what we think of. But what I am telling you is that Satan and his demons might look more like a politician. They might look more like a businessman. They might look more like a religious man. Second Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 11, verse 14, and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves 
as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. He's saying the people who lead us astray are actually appearing to lead us towards God. What Satan and those who follow him in their fleshly pursuit are doing often is using God for themselves. What we're tempted to do is we're tempted to question God's presence and manipulate God's promises. It's kind of humiliating to say we follow a God who is for us, who is powerful, and then to go through a trial, maybe even a severe trial, while people look at us with a where is your God now attitude. So what we are tempted to do is to say, God, prove yourself. And so we're tempted to put ourselves into situations where God has to stop me from doing the wrong thing. Or where God has to come through. And this is how Jesus is tempted here. But Jesus says to him, verse 7, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus trusted in the security of God. He trusted in the security of God. He knew that God's plan was good, that God's word could be trusted, and that even if he were to face death in this life, that he was secure in the hands of a good, powerful, loving God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, we see where Jesus quotes from, where it's referring to not testing God like the Israelites did at Massa, which happened in Exodus 17, where they are telling God, if you're with us, provide for us now. And they strike the rock. Even though God had provided manna for them, they're forcing God to act to prove himself. And we often live our lives in this way, where God has to prove his presence and God's promises has to come through us in a way we want them to come through. I mean this with respect, but this is the root of a lot of what we call the charismatic Pentecostal movement. There are some who are genuine in their faith, But a lot of what the charismatic Pentecostal movement is built around is God forcing his presence to be felt and the manipulation of God's promises on earth. Where we try to manufacture these moments and these experiences where we feel God. And it's centered around that. When the Bible talks about the presence of God being something we feel daily. Because we have the Holy Spirit. We don't have to usher in the Holy Spirit. Jesus ushered in the Holy Spirit. It is not the job of Pastor Justin or or me to lead us to the presence of God. It is our job to remind us of the presence of God. 
It is not our job to make sure the promises of God happen. It is our job to remind us of the promises of God and that all of the promises of God find their yes in him, Jesus. That is why we utter our amens to him. We trust in God by our daily obedience in him by our reliance on the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. Now look, this church can learn about being free in worship a little bit, so, you know, love you, but we can. But our faith does not hinge on moments and experiences. Our faith hinges on the finished work of Christ and the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in our hearts because of that work. If we say things to God, like give me a sign, God has given us plenty of signs. Give me a sign, God, or I'm just going to do what I want. Then we are just going to do what we want. God, if you don't want me to, you have to stop me. That is putting the Lord, your God, to the test. Jesus trusted in the security of God, even though it was difficult on earth, and so should we. I think that Satan perhaps saved the strongest temptation for last, so let's look at that, and then we'll come back with some questions for all of us. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, Jesus deserves the throne. Jesus is entitled to the throne. He deserves to be the king of kings, to be honored by everyone, to be followed by everyone, to be adored by everyone, to be exalted by God himself. And while God can certainly be trusted over Satan, and all of us would say that, I mean, people who worship Satan, it's like, you know, you're worshiping the loser in the Bible. I mean, that's where we get Satan from. He's the loser in the Bible. So most of us would say, yes, we worship God and God can be trusted over Satan, over this world. But there is certainly the thought in all of us of the gratification of the immediate satisfaction that we can have in this life. And we are tempted to exchange the eventual, eternal exaltation by God for the immediate temporal exaltation of this world. You see, Christ not only promises that he will be exalted, because that's a promise in the Bible, but he also promises that we will be exalted. That is a promise in the scripture. So we're called to humility, but that feeling you have of I want to be exalted is not altogether bad. We're just deceived if we believe that anyone other than God can exalt us in a way that is true and that is eternal and that is fulfilling. Yet, what we're tempted to do in this life is to exchange that exaltation now to a life of seeking status, neglecting the eternal opportunities we have, to strive to feel better than others and continually put them down, to seek what we can get out of people rather than investing in people, to live our lives for our glory and for all the recognition in this world without worrying about what God himself thinks of us. Jesus had to think about what he was entitled to, what he longed for, what he was looking forward to. 
But he must have also thought about what he was going to have to endure for that to be done God's way. And yet, here's what he says, verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus trusted in the sovereignty of God. He trusted in the sovereignty of God. He recognized that God's kingdom is the only kingdom that lasts forever. He realized that status in this world was not worth giving up the place that God has prepared for him. Why? Because being God, he knew God. He knew who God was and what the promises of the Bible are, are is that we can know God and when we do, we realize that he is truly sovereign. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 here when the Israelites, they have all the good stuff from God and yet they want what the other gods can give them now. It's an issue of worship. It's an issue of worship. Will we worship God or we worship something else? And when we worship God, we submit our time to him and our career to him and our goals to him and our integrity to him and our finances to him and we're humble and we're generous because God's king. Jesus trusted in the sovereignty of God, so should we. Jesus, when tempted, when tested, said, this is what God's word says, and this is what I'm living for. And Luke 4, 13 says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, I want you to recognize there, Satan is finite. Satan is not ever-present. Demons are not ever-present. Mark says that in verse 13, he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. As Jesus withstands his temptation, God restores him and prepares him for his ministry on earth. As we think on the temptations of Jesus, there are three questions to ask ourselves. The first question is this. Am I trusting in the sufficiency, security, and sovereignty of God? Am I trusting in the sufficiency of God? Is the word of God what sustains me? Or is it earthly provision? Am I living to get by? Or am I living for God to be at work in my life? What is it? that sustains me. Because even if trusting in God seems to not be what is sustaining, I know his word and I know it will sustain me. Am I trusting in the security of God? Do I trust in God's will for my life or do I need big experiences to prove to myself and others that God is with me? Do I trust that God has me in his hand because his word says that he does. Am I trusting in the sovereignty of God? Do I believe that God will eventually, eternally exalt me? Or am I succumbing to temporal, immediate exaltation? 
do I believe that the recognition of my Savior who would say, well done, my good and faithful servant, is what I should be living for. And the life I live on this earth is lived in view of that. Or is God something that I use to to experience the affirmation of people? Which kingdom am I really living for? What status am I living for? Am I trusting in the sufficiency, security, and sovereignty of God? The next question that we should ask ourselves is, is this a spirit-led test or a self-led temptation? The Spirit of God leads us into test, to places where our faith is on trial, where we see God prove himself as we remain steadfast. But also we find ourselves in places where we're tempted to sin because of where we've gone and the choices we've made. And so are we in a trial? And yes, there's a temptation to sin, but ultimately God has us where we are in that trial because that's where he has us. It's just the circumstances that he's allowed to cause in our life or we've followed him and that's where we are and it's, we have to persevere. Or have we pursued our flesh and that's why we're constantly tempted But either way, the answer in those situations is run from temptation. Run from the serpent. Don't believe the lies of temptation, but run to the word of God. That's what Adam and Eve should have done. That's what Jesus did. And that's what we must do in those situations. And then the last question is, am I living by the word of God? Is that my life the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us the word is most clearly revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ in the person of Jesus Christ is that what I go to is he who I go to in every situation and do I trust in his word for my life do I depend on his word for how I should live I heard a preacher say one time that if you don't have time for breakfast and the Bible in the morning, read the Bible and grab a granola bar on your way out. Do we long for God to inform us that way? Are we seeing everything through the lens of the gospel? And is the word informing our marriage and informing our decisions and informing all the choices that we make. And when we are saturated in the word, it does something about our identity in the midst of temptation. Because like I said, the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. Here's what was happening in Christ. In Hebrews chapter four, the author says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. When Jesus endured temptation all the way through the cross, what we see is we see Jesus making a way for us. He was tempted, yet he was without sin, and he is winning the victory for us. 
Danny Aiken says it was the resurrection, or excuse me, resumption of a battle begun long ago in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. See, Jesus' victory over Satan has sealed the eternal provision, protection, and exaltation of those who have succumbed to Satan's offers of those things on earth. So the answer here in our temptation is not pick yourself up by your bootstraps, make it through the temptation, and you'll be good enough to get to heaven. No, what, what this is telling us that Jesus did for us is his victory over Satan has sealed the eternal provision. That means that God will always give us what we need. The eternal protection, that means we are secure forever in Christ. And the eternal exaltation, that means we are exalted as sons and daughters of God of the kingdom of those who have succumbed to Satan's offers of those things on earth. You see, these things are Jesus's and those things are now ours. And he gives us mercy and grace in our time of need. That's what Jesus has done and does for us. So yesterday, uh, I, had, I had a funeral to attend in the morning, and then we had like the small break in the downpour of what's going on and what we call spring right now. And so we had this small break, and I needed to take down this tree because uh, I, I needed to take it down. It's in between me and my neighbor's house, and uh, I, I was going to wait on a chainsaw, but I ended up... Uh, knocking it down with an axe and my strength on my own. And so I was feeling pretty good about myself. Uh, I'm a little sore today, but that's okay. Um, and so, man, I was feeling accomplished and I looked down and there's our, our orange tree. And uh, I've talked about orange tree before. It doesn't produce oranges. It produces some kind of fruit that resembles oranges because another tree has grown up and corrupted its ability to produce the right kind of fruit. And I've been saying, I need to deal with that so I can have a healthy orange tree again. And I said, today is the day. And so I went and I started going to work on that tree. But that tree that was growing up around my orange tree had these branches and it had thorns that were this long. And I don't know if you can fully see that. I'll put it in the palm of my hand. Um, Those things hurt and you can even see if you look close enough, I have scrapes all over my hand. And so as I'm taking this tree down, I mean, it's not just one of these, it's a ton of these. And it's a lot of branches. I mean, they're piled up. I feel bad for the guys that got to put, put, take that up uh, this week. And finally, as I'm doing it, one just, I mean, it jabs me in the leg and I'm bleeding everywhere. And I'm like, man, this tree is out to get me. I, I like really felt like it was shooting these things at me and it was coming to life. Um, but I'm like, you know what? This tree is coming down because this orange tree is going to produce fruit. And I thought in that moment, that is what Jesus has done. And so, yes, in the battle that Jesus fought for us, he bled. But there wasn't one second that we weren't confident, that he wasn't confident, that God wasn't confident, that even though he may have bled, those thorns were coming down and his fruit would be produced. And that's what Jesus has done for the world. And what Jesus has done for the world, Jesus will do in you. And so it may bleed and it may hurt as that work happens in your life. But God's will is that you produce fruit of righteousness, right relationship with God, right standing, only by the power of the blood of Christ. God is sufficient, God is secure, and God is sovereign. 
And you are invited to that. Not because you withstand temptation, but because of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray right now that if there is someone in this room who has thought that the answer is in themselves, that they would look to you. And as they look to you, what they would realize is what they need is you. And God, you give us righteousness. You give us access. You give us everything that we need in you. And God, I pray that Christians, that we would daily depend on your grace, realizing your sufficiency, your security, and your sovereignty. And we would cling to you now. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.